sermon series that's on membership. And what we're considering this year is how we can hashtag thrive the five. That is thrive as a church over the next five years. We've talked about a beautiful church and a safe church. And this week I want to talk about an edifying church. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Young disciples, you will need that passage for your sermon guide. That is on page 955 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Does anyone know or want to guess what the very first doctrine addressed in Antioch's statement of beliefs? Anybody? It's like we're talking about doctrine. Nobody wants to say anything. The word? You got it. Who said it? Boom. You got it. It is the Bible. And it reads this. We believe God wrote the Bible through men without error. Now, why would this be at the top instead of the Trinity or the gospel? Well, because without God's specific revelation of himself, we would not know him in truth nor any doctrine about him. And so this, this is the God-given word that is complete in revealing his will for salvation, sufficient for all that he requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. So then, in today's sermon, I will explain how an edifying church, young disciples, you need that word, edifying, a church that builds one another up more and more into all that God created us to be. That's what the word edifying means. An edifying church, one, handles the word, and two, is handled by the word. So with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Church, the Lord has spoken to us, and let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, one of my favorite shows from back in the day that I just found out this week is actually still around is Whose Line Is It Anyway? Anybody a fan? All right. So it's an improvisational comedy show where 
comedians just like make stuff up as they go. And one of the most hilarious games that they play is called props, where you give two teams these random props and you see who can come up with more uses of those props. Now, when I was a youth minister, our group loved to play props. And so this morning, went back in my old school youth minister days and joined, joined Pastor Jason and our youth, asking them to play this game and help me with the sermon. And so here's what, well, one of the things that I gave them, okay? And here's some of the creative things they came up with. Magic wand, bippity-boppity-boo, I think was the way that they used it, okay? Dentist tool. Oh, that'll make, oh. Picture hanging nail. How was it they did it? So it was like, like that. So you can hang it or upside like that. Got it. Okay, so you can hang a picture on the wall. Oscar, I'm so thankful to have won this award. Thank you for, okay, (laughs) got it. Laser eyes. I don't know what that one was. Carnival hoop. You know, you like throw the ring and it lands on there. Okay. Baseball bat, of course. And then the most creative of all, celery. <laughs> yeah, you just own it, Stone. All, always food. Now, the reason why that, that is so silly and funny is because you're taking something and you're intentionally using it the wrong way, which in a game can be really hilarious, but in real life can be really dangerous. And nowhere more so than the wrong use of the word of God. That very thing is one of the primary concerns of Paul the Apostle as he writes what was likely his final letters to a young pastor named Timothy. We know that the right use of Scripture was really important to Paul, not simply because he wrote a lot of Scripture, but because it was the means by which the truth about God would continue to be proclaimed long after he was gone. And so for this reason, when he departed from the church at Ephesus, which is actually the church where Timothy is now pastoring in this context, Paul anticipated that, quote, fierce wolves, that is, false teachers, would immediately arise speaking twisted things. What was Paul's solution to that in his absence? He says this, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up edification, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul's saying, like, do you want to escape being devoured by fierce wolves? Like, instead of being torn to pieces, do you want to be built up? Instead of losing everything, do you want to have an eternal inheritance? Instead of being set apart from God, do you want to be set apart with God? Then, Paul says, If you want those things, I commend you, Ephesian elders, Timothy, Antioch Church, I commend you to the word of his grace, where every word points to the good news of God's salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope that you find at Antioch every time you come in these doors. Had a visitor who said to me recently, We came to Antioch and we decided we're not going to visit anywhere else because it was just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I was like, you couldn't have given us a better, you couldn't give us a better compliment. Praise, praise God. I hope that 
What you always find at Antioch is that every passage that we take from Scripture always ultimately reveals God and leads you to Him. This is what an edifying church does. An edifying church handles the Word. Young disciples, you need that Word, handles. Now, some of you may remember during our Antioch family series last August, we actually preached the, the passage right after this in 2 Timothy. It was the sermon that was titled, The Anchor for Youth. Anybody remember that one? It was the one that was on gender and sexuality. Now we all remember it. It was that one, okay? Well, thanks to the straightforward nature of Paul's letters to Timothy, I used the pattern in that sermon, don't do that, but instead do this. And so today, I'm going to use that same pattern again. So here's our first, don't do that. Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And when Paul says to remind them of these things, he's referring to the sound doctrine of the apostles, which they received directly from Jesus and which is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, that which is of first importance in their doctrine is the gospel, the only means by which we can be restored to God. And so to not teach God's people from the full counsel of God's scripture, that's from Genesis to Revelation, to not teach God's people from the full counsel of scripture ultimately weakens the church's grasp on the gospel. Paul says, don't do that, but not just to Timothy. Paul says, charge them. That's the whole church. You see, in multiple places, the New Testament teaches us to admonish one another. That is to warn, to exhort, to speak the truth to one another in love. You all think that my role up here is significant. Yours is too, church. And for this reason, Paul says, charge them before God. Like, it's one thing for the teacher to warn the students to get it together. It's another thing for the principal to walk in, right? Who has the power to expel all of them. Charge them before God. And their charge is this, to not quarrel about words. Literally, these are word fights that are catastrophe, which is the Greek word where we get catastrophic. Literally, word fights overturn listeners, which is the opposite of edifying them, building them up. And y'all, I think this is especially relevant to Louisville, Kentucky, where we have such a rich theological culture because of Southern Seminary. But it also means that you are never far away from overhearing or participating in a theological debate which does not have in its end purpose building one another up, forming one another more into Christ and applying it rightly to the word, but instead is a matter of intellectual stimulation or argumentation and in its worst form being puffed up because of knowledge. And it makes for a culture in churches where some people are weighing every word you say, listening more with crossed arms than open hearts and open hands. And I know that because when I was going through seminary, the Spirit convicted me that I had that same posture toward the preachers that I was listening to. 
But this is more than just Louisville, isn't it? It only takes a glance at social media to see that many people seem eager to fight over the meaning and application of Scripture. And sadly, many of them are often within the Reformed tradition. My first experience of this was in college, where a few of my classmates were so argumentative and belittling to people that I swore I would never be like them. In the Reformed tradition, we have a high view of Scripture, and we really care about sound doctrine, as we should. But taking it too far, it can also lead us to be what we as pastors have described as hyper-vigilant. That is a posture that goes beyond the Scripture's call to be vigilant, to be careful, to always see things through the lens of Scripture and sound doctrine. Sorry, I lost my place. There it is. A posture that goes beyond the scripture's call to be vigilant and also becomes a form of religion police. Now that sounds kind of crazy, but let me tell you this story that is crazy. When I lived overseas as a missionary, we were in a community seeking to share the gospel, handing out some Bibles, and suddenly a man did what is really described in the book of Acts, stirred up a riot and sought to stone us to death in the streets. Now, the police intervened, and we had to go off to jail and go into basically what was court, and it be ruled on. And as we were going, I asked this man, who are you? Now, my meaning was like, what's your name? I just wanted to be kind of human with him in that interaction. And he never told me his name, but what he said was, which means the keeper or the guard or the police of the religion. You see, unchecked hypervigilance over sound doctrine ironically ends up forfeiting it altogether because guess what sound doctrine has as its chief virtue? Christ-like love, okay? And Paul describes this person, this, this religion police and his impact in the first letter to Timothy. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, godliness as a means of gain, in its worst expression, in its most deceiving output, I think, means gaining a sense of righteousness based on rightness means not based on what Christ has done for you, but it's based on the fact that you have your doctrine right or your doctrine more right than other people. And because of that, you you feel righteous, but it's really just rightness. And this is essentially what I would call Bible worship. Now, that sounds crazy. How could you possibly love the Scriptures too much and end up worshiping it? Well, listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Mm. You see, the idolatry of the scriptures and sound doctrine actually leads us away from the person of Jesus Christ every time. Don't do that, Paul says. There's no life there. 
Instead, do this, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Right based on him and the handling of his word. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rather than concerning himself with being right in the eyes of people, Paul urges Timothy to be zealous for God's approval. And the picture that Paul gives here is like a a worker who does good work. When I thought about this imagery this week, my mind went to Pastor Robbie. I don't know if you know what his vocation is, but he is an engineer. And specifically, he is in charge of overseeing extremely heavy things moved safely over waterways on barges. High-risk activity, okay? If Robbie is lazy and plays Minecraft all day, and does careless work, it will be revealed, won't it, eventually? When? When that thing sinks, right? And as it sinks and its last bubbles go up, what's Robbie going to feel? Ashamed. And especially when he stands before his boss for the last time. But of course, we know that Robbie does work hard, and so there is no cloud of shame overhanging him as each project is handled rightly. In fact, I love to hear from Robbie and see him after one of these um, stressful projects is over, and he's beaming with pride and relief that it went well thanks to his hard work. This is what Paul wants for Timothy, that he would work hard to understand and apply the word rightly for the building up of himself and others. The language used here has the literal sense of cutting in a straight line, guiding along a straight path. It's where we would eventually develop the term orthodoxy, okay? And when it comes to the word of truth, which is a phrase that's used consistently in reference to the gospel itself, Timothy is to get it straight, and to give it straight. Now the danger here, which is also seen so clearly all around us, is to be what the pastors call under-vigilant, the opposite of hyper-vigilant. That is a posture that doesn't live up to the scripture's call to be vigilant. This is a laziness toward God's word that reveals a disinterest toward God himself. Not only does it lead to misunderstanding and thus misusing Scripture, it also eventually expresses itself as intentionally setting aside inconvenient parts of Scripture. And in doing so, it also forfeits sound doctrine, and it loses our grip on the gospel because we make the Bible subservient to culture instead of letting God speak for himself and what is true about himself in the world, about us. And in its worst expression, it becomes a form of culture police, okay? This is people who are set on canceling and attacking others because of Scripture. And what we're talking about with both hypervigilance and undervigilance is the weaponizing of the word. This is the phrase that came up in Fall Pastors Retreat. Over the next five years, in the face of what will continue to happen culturally, politically, economically, socially, 
the Bible will continue to be used as a means of attacking and dividing. Yes, the right handling of the word naturally becomes a sharp, two-edged sword. It tells us of that in itself. It naturally becomes a sharp, two-edged sword that reveals sin and defeats demons and destroys heresy and divides sheep from goats. It's powerful. It is dangerous. But weaponizing it is catastrophic, both in the church and before a watching world. And it's like taking this hammer and using it the wrong way. Antioch, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, do this. Let's be vigilant in our understanding and application of God's word with its aim being to build one another up. Let's be hungry to learn it in our Sunday gatherings and our family groups and our 9 a.m. classes, not just for the sake of knowledge, but for formation and obedience. Let's be eager to study it in our individual lives and in the context of intentional gospel relationships like husband and wife, friend and friend, parent and child, older and younger, rather than only being indoctrinated by our favorite celebrities with whom we have no relationship or accountability. Let's be unashamed to share it with people who need to experience how every word of the Bible points to the good news of God's salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, rather than building up political perspective or being used in whatever way to make you feel more right than another person. Let's not use it in word fights and the tearing down that looks no different from the world and ruins hearers. Let's be an edifying church that handles the word rightly. Amen? You want that? I do. And secondly today, let's be an edifying church that is handled by the word. Young disciples, you need that word handled. Paul's don't do that pattern picks back up in verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now the phrase irreverent babble doubles Paul's emphasis here. This is pointless, fruitless babble, banter, talking, argumentation. In other letters, he specifies this as beliefs not based on Scripture, but on philosophy, myths, human tradition, natural elements, and straight-up lies. Y'all, this is what we call heresy, the opposite of orthodoxy. And ironically, it too cuts a straight line. But instead of cutting it upward toward godliness, it cuts it downward toward ungodliness. And it doesn't just affect the babbler. It always guides others down that same path path. Paul says it spreads like gangrene. Y'all know what gangrene is? I had to look it up. I should have just called KB. She could have told me. This is the death of body tissue when there's a lack of blood flow or an infection. And if it's left unchecked, it causes a slow, foul, excruciating death. In other words, 
If heresy is allowed to find open pasture in the flock of God, it can wipe out a whole church. An example of this comes in the second half of verse 17. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And they are upsetting the faith of some. See the impact? Leading others down the path. Now, Hymenaeus has already been mentioned by Paul in his first letter to Timothy as a man who had been removed as an act of church discipline because he was unrepentantly teaching false doctrine. And sadly, this attempt at restoration clearly had not yet worked because Hymenaeus had not only continued his heresy, but now he's picked up a new sidekick, Philetus. Now, what exactly is this heresy? was that the resurrection had already happened, meaning the ultimate end times restoration of all things has already arrived for followers of Christ. That's what he's teaching. That's what he's saying. And it's like, well, that doesn't sound that bad, right? I mean, he's still pointing people to Jesus. It sounds kind of Christian, maybe just a little, little different. But that's the thing about false teaching. Like it's often very subtle. And it takes the word of truth and it twists it just enough. Look at the implications of this heresy. To say that the resurrection has already occurred is to say that Jesus' physical resurrection doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Jesus is physically in heaven. There's no need to wait for his return. There's no reason to hope in our own physical resurrection from the dead. Elsewhere, Paul says, if that's true, if there's no ultimate resurrection, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. doesn't matter. What do we do if that's true? But there's also another implication of this heresy. To say that the resurrection has already occurred is to say that Hymenaeus already has the good life in fullness. His health, his wealth, his privilege... His power. In other words, follow my doctrine and you'll be like me. You'll prosper. You can have whatever you want right here, right now. Which also means what? This isn't just a a monetized play. This is a power play. He's saying this. Paul over there in prison, in comparison to me, he's suffering. He's sick. He's broke. He's vulnerable. Don't trust him. He obviously hasn't been resurrected to the good life. His gospel is weak and wrong. Don't follow him. Follow me. He's not God's chosen. You see how subtle and yet it's like gangrene and how it upsets the faith of people because they don't know who to trust anymore. Who's teaching the word of God rightly? I don't know. And because of the weakness of their handle on the scriptures, they follow a man like Hymenaeus. Sounds good. It seems good. Paul seems bad. Look at how much of a mess he's in. Look how weak he is. Now, of course, most of us here have had the ability to like sniff out and avoid stereotypical heretical teachings in our culture. 
Like you, you can ca- you've probably been around the block long enough to catch them. And if you hear me read some of these and you're like, no, that sounds good to me, well, come and talk to me or one of the pastors afterward and we'll explain this more. But let me give you some examples. Pluralism. That is that there are many ways to God. Every religion, if you're faithful to it, will lead you to the same God. That's a heresy. Humanism, that people are inherently good. There's no sin that you need to overcome by divine help. You just need to continue growing in virtue, okay? That's heresy. Jehovah's Witnesses, which teach many heretical things, mishandling, misinterpreting the scriptures to their own purposes, but specifically would say that Jesus was the angel Michael who eventually worked his way up to be the son of God. That's heresy. What about Mormonism, which is just straight absolutely crazy, but it's in the name of Jesus Christ. They base everything on modern revelation that does not come from the scriptures at all. That's heresy. The prosperity gospel, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, You're like, yeah, duh, thanks, that didn't help me at all. And being vigilant toward heresy. Let me ask you this, are you vigilant with the word of God to sniff it out and avoid its more subtle and more modern expressions? Do you smell the gangrene spreading from MAGA prayer rallies and family-friendly drag shows? How about one that hits even closer to home? split my heart wide open this week. Professor Tom Schreiner says that when we allow ourselves to be ruled by perfectionism, got any perfectionists in the room besides me up here? When you allow yourself to be ruled by perfectionism, it is a denial of the resurrection. Because in it, we are seeking to achieve for ourselves Only that which can be accomplished by Christ himself when he raises us physically from the dead. Unchecked perfectionism in your heart, everything looking good on the outside because you're giving 110% to everything in order to be right is taking you away from the gospel. It's heresy. Wow, that hits home. Wow, it's dangerous. And if false doctrine is this subtle, then how can we know who's peddling it? And how can we not fall for it ourselves? Well, Paul answers in verse 19. In the midst of all this confusion, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Young disciples, you need that word. Iniquity is another word for sin and rebellion against God. So guess what? What does Paul point Timothy and us to in response to avoiding overcoming heresy? The word of God. This is the firm foundation. Though heaven and earth may pass away, my word will not pass away. Matthew 24, verse 35. Jesus says it will stand. And to prove it, he makes direct reference to the book of Numbers. There we learn a story about a man named Korah who led a rebellion against Moses, the leader of God's people. And the people were divided. Who is to be trusted? Korah had a really good reason for rebelling, it seemed. He had people behind him. 
He seemed like a guy that was going to lead everyone out of this crazy mess and desert. Who was to be trusted? Now, in hindsight, like we see it clearly, we know that Moses is the man. But in the moment, they didn't see it. Moses, what is his response? He stands on God's firm foundation. And he says this, the Lord knows who are his. You can fight and argue about it all day long, but I will stand on God's word and be faithful to it and depart from sin and let the Lord know and reveal who are his. And the next morning, we read that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all his company and that they fell alive into Sheol. Like Moses, he didn't need to go on the attack to prove that he was God's chosen. Nor did he need to attack himself with doubts about being God's chosen. Don't do that, Paul is saying. Instead, do this. Like Moses, in the midst of the confusion, take hope in the word of Jesus. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. And how can we do that today? With an absence of the physical Jesus walking around saying, follow me. We can do it today because the written word that proclaims the living word. And as you believe that word of truth, then apply it. Apply it in this way. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, which, by the way, is another quote from the Old Testament. If handling the word wrongly always cuts a straight line to ungodliness and rebellion, then handling the word of God rightly always cuts straight lines to making you more like Jesus. And if the, if the danger that we applied to Antioch earlier was in weaponizing the word, then the danger here for us is in what I call euthanizing the word. That is, emptying it of its life and power by not standing on it setting aside that which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That is euthanizing the word. And over the next five years and all this craziness and confusion, how will we hear and know and follow God's voice? The word. Church, what do we say when we stand and finish the reading of God's word? What do we say? Thanks be to God, but we say something before that. The Lord has spoken to us. Wait a minute, the preacher hasn't preached yet. How can the Lord have spoken to us? Because if you want to hear his voice, he's speaking. He's spoken right here. And I'm just proclaiming as best I can, often imperfectly, what he has already said and is alive and powerful. Thanks be to God that he has done this. And so let us not euthanize the word if we want to thrive the five. Again, that would be like taking this hammer and just not using it the right way. Instead, let's be handled by the word. Let the word grip us and shape us, move us, build us up. Because that's the same thing that Jesus did. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus came as the living word. Young disciples, you'll need that. Jesus is God's 
word, his living word. The eternal God who spoke the world into being, but he did not come separating himself from his union with his father, leading a rebellion against heaven in order to assert his own rightness, weaponizing himself to attack and divide. No, no. He allowed himself to be handled by the word. And what did that look like in his life? Did that mean he prospered in every way? No, not at all. Listen to the word that he allowed himself to be handled by, that which was foretold by all the prophets in every word of the Old Testament, that the Christ would suffer and be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. You see, he was God's chosen. More than anyone who's ever lived, he was the Lord's own. More than anyone who's ever lived, he departed from iniquity. And yet he still allowed himself to be swallowed up by the earth and to fall into the place of death. Why? So that you could be edified. So that you could be forgiven of your sins and restored that his spirit might come and live in you and you could be built up into the likeness of him not torn down forever so that you could be used in the right way. Church, you can use this hammer in the wrong way and you can do some serious damage with it. What God has entrusted to us is a powerful and dangerous thing. But guess what happens if you use this hammer in the right way. You can build amazing things. Can't you? And so, that is exactly what the word of truth is for. In the same letter, Paul finishes with this, about the scriptures. All of it is read out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, not in rightness, but righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. There it is. The written word is alive and powerful and effective. Why? Because it proclaims the living word, Jesus Christ, and leads you to him. And I hope that's what you've experienced today and every time that you're around Antioch Church. And look at where the written word has led us once more. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, we are announcing that Jesus Christ is the living word to which the written word speaks and the one to whom we come over and over and over again.
Our invitation today for those of you who are baptized believers is to come to the Lord's table, to come with a heart that's been broken and open before the Lord so that he can do whatever work he wants to do and you can come in the right spirit, so you can come without shame but with great joy, breaking off a piece of bread and dipping it into the juice and taking it as you in doing so proclaim that the Lord has come for you and that he is coming again. The resurrection of all things is not yet. Because our Jesus is not here. It's not here yet. It's coming. If you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, we would invite you instead of taking this to take Christ. He's made himself available to you. I just want to ask, like, what are you waiting for? Like, it's not a good excuse. <laughs> whatever, you could, whatever you fill that blank up with, it is not a good excuse. Why are you waiting? Come. Come to him today. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Come and counsel with us. If you have a burden on your heart, come and let us pray for you. Let's pray, church. God, we bow before you in this moment. We thank you for your word, which is so powerful. Lord, we know that heresy can seep in so subtly and spread like gangrene. And yet at the same time, the preaching of your word, the study of your word, the application and wrestling with your word can also so subtly move into the depths of our souls and our lives and over time change us and make us more and more like Jesus until the day that we see him face to face. And so God, today I just pray that people would be able to acknowledge that your word has brought them once more before you, the living word, and that they would respond to you. May people come to your table with great joy, thanking you for having set them free, and with a greater longing to know you by knowing your word and handling it rightly and being handled by it. And I pray for those who have not yet allowed themselves to be handled, gripped by the good news of Jesus. And may today be the day that they respond. Have your way, Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.